0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Today's sermon is titled, Jesus is the Beginning of All Things New. Uh, It is um, a continuation of our series called All Things New. Uh, So we have gone through, uh, so far we've gone through creation where we saw the goodness of God and His design and we've seen uh, decreation, the corruption of God's uh, good design. And we're currently in the third phase, called recreation. We are seeing the God the Father through Jesus uh, re- reclaims His good design. In the first sermon of on recreation, uh, Matthew in Matthew uh, three and four, Jacob looked at who Jesus is—a king with a gentle heart someone that was tempted in all ways that we are, a gracious friend and full of gentle power. Then last week, uh, Jacob dug into how Jesus rehumanizes us by helping us in our everyday needs and struggles. Today we're going to look at how Jesus began the process to get us back to Eden uh, before the fall. He is a catalyst for all things new. This is God's ultimate plan at heart for us to bring us back to the way things were before the fall in the Garden of Eden." This is his heart for making all things new. Uh, The main point that we're going to see is that all things are made new through the love of Jesus. The passage we're going to look at today is John chapter 10 verses 1 through 30, pardon this. Uh, This is a very popular passage in the Bible uh, where we see Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. We don't think about shepherds too much in our culture today, Um, but back in the time the Israelites, um, that was very commonplace for them. The job of the shepherd was very intensive because sheep were very needy and quite frankly, helpless. Their jobs included protecting, providing food and water, shelter and medical care, to name a few. It was a 24-hour job. In this relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, we get a picture of our reliance on Jesus. But we also see the loving care that the shepherd has for his sheep. In John 10 and throughout the Bible, we're going to see that God wants to have a tangible and personal relationship with us because he loves us, similar to how the shepherd loves his sheep. It's going to be kind of a a common theme here through the passage that we're going to see. Uh, So I'm going to read the passage for us and pray, and then we're going to dive in and see what God has for us today. So John 10, uh, 1 through 30. It's going to be uh, on the screen. Well, it's not actually going to be on the screen because it was too long. I didn't make a slide. So I'll read it for you. Uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane by why listen to him. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity to uh, look at it and to digest it, Lord, today. And I just pray that you will speak to our hearts, just calm, calm our minds as we have a lot of worries and thoughts. From the weak Lord, and I just pray that we will focus on Your Word and hear what You have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first point we're going to see is that Jesus begins the restoration of God with us. Uh, verse one through fifteen. I'm going to start out by giving you a little backstory behind this. After man was created in Genesis, we get a glimpse into what the relationship between God and man looked like. We see God walking in the garden and uh, communicating directly with Adam and Eve when he was giving them instruction. Those are only a couple hints of what this relationship looked like. But suffice it to say, it seemed that God had a tangible and personal presence with his people. However, after man's sin, everything changed. See, due to our chain or our sin, our personal relationship with God was severed, and Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in God's presence. But even though we sin, we still see God's heart for us as He proactively sought to dwell with His people. We see this first in the book of Exodus, uh, with Him leading the people of Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of clouds and, and fire. This was a very large a visual of God's presence, however, it was not very personable. Next we see his presence dwelling with his people in the tent of meeting and subsequently the temple. The problem was that man's sin and God's holiness. people do not have the ability to see him face to face. We read this in Exodus 33:20, where it says, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." The only person at that time could even get close to God's presence uh, was a priest, and that was only once a year. This continued on for centuries. However, this was not God's ultimate plan. We got a better insight in his plan in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's going to be uh, behind me on the screen, so you don't need to turn there. And the beloved. You see here that this plan was set in motion before Adam and Eve were even created. Before the world was created, God already had the plan to send his son for us. And we're gonna see what this plan looked like in John chapter 10. Now here we see God and is about as tangible as you can get. He was live and in person. Walking amongst his people. That is why they called his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, Jesus made this perfectly clear that he was God, so there was no doubt of his deity. He says in verse 29 that we read, I and the Father are one. Now, this is a new phase in God's plan to be with his people. Here we see God's full desire to be both visibly with his people and personally. Now, I feel the visibility of God is rather eminent in Jesus. So I wanna focus on God's heart to be personal. Now, there's a lot in uh, the first 15 verses of this passage, uh, but for the sake of time, we're gonna look at three phrases. The first phrase is in verse three. He says, he calls his sheep, he calls his own sheep by name now, at first glance, this might seem not, like not a big deal. Um, you know, we use names all the time when we talk to each other. But imagine this. You're watching a, a, on TV the United Nations Summit on Climate Control, and the President of the UN, for those who didn't know who that is, it's Abdullah Shaheed, walks up, walks up to the mic and says, now I have a lot of thoughts regarding what, um, what we can do to help climate control. However, before I speak, I'd like to hear what Jacob Young has to say about the topic. Now, it's crazy to think that the president of the United Nations would even know Jacob's name, nonetheless less refer him in front of the world. But if you think that's crazy, imagine an infinite, eternal, all-powerful being knowing your name and calling you by it. This seems personal, but actually it's more intimate than you think. In the ancient Hebrew culture, a name was intended to capture a person's character and personality. So when the passage says he calls you by name, it's more than just him using your name. It's applying a more personal knowledge of who you are. What an awesome God that we serve, that not only calls us by our name, but also knows who we are. This is mind-blowing to think of a God being so personal, but it's gonna get even deeper. You see, God is not just satisfied knowing your name and your personality. We're gonna see this in the next phrase in verse 14 to 15. It says, I know my, or Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now if we consider this in light of verse 29, where it says that Jesus is God and the Father are one, that means that Jesus knows God fully because he is God. What that means for us, therefore, is that Jesus knows us fully and truly, 100%. This has major ramifications for us. It means that we have nothing to hide before Jesus. We can bear our soul with the confidence to know then we're not going to tell him some secret sin that he didn't know, and he's going to judge us for that. He already knows us. We can be real with Jesus. This realness is ultimately what we all seek. Deep down, we all need and want a friend that we can just be ourselves with. Someone that knows us and we can share our darkest battles with. That is who Jesus is. Uh, What makes this even more meaningful is that Jesus was tempted and knows what we were going through. Jacob uh, elaborated this a couple weeks ago. So he not only knows us, but he can also relate to us. He knows what we're going through, and he cares. Now you may be thinking, this is all grain fine for those who were alive when Jesus was, but he's not walking with us today. We don't have that presence uh, the personal presence. And we do have the Holy Spirit uh, living in us, but that's not a physical form. That's why this point is titled Jesus Begins the Restoration of God with Us. We are closer to God than we ever have been in history because of Jesus, but He's not physically with us. This will happen but not until the end. However, this is why God gives us community. We can, just, we can get a taste of a personal relationship with the physical Jesus would look like with each other. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to dig into this too deep, but I will say this. Jesus desires us to work on our relationships with each other, to grow close and deep with each other, we see this desire when he says in Mark 12, Love your neighbor as yourself. In Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one, an- bear with one another in love. Well, thanks to Peter, I recently started listening to a podcast, podcast by Kurt Thompson called Being Known. Kurt studies a big long word called interpersonal neurobiology. Now, for those who don't know what that is, essentially, it's how people's interactions with each other affects how they think and their brains. Anyway, he talks about being vulnerable and sharing a piece of our story that we feel ashamed about with a trusted friend. When you do this and talk through it with this friend, it allows us to think more truly about the situation. We often get stuck in our own heads and think uh, falsely about things that are going on in our lives. And we need that outside perspective to really see what actually has happened. This frees us to be more creative because we are not spending energy keeping the secret from other people. In this scenario, the friend is giving us a glimpse of Jesus. He or she knows you more and helps you have a more realistic view of yourself. And there's a lot of practical stuff that Kurt speaks in this podcast, so I recommend that you check it out. That brings us to the final phrase in point one that we're going to look at, and it comes in verse 10. It says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes to help us to live fuller lives. It just wasn't so that we wouldn't suffer spiritual death but that we could live abundant lives. If you remember back to the first sermon in the series, we saw that God created the world for us, that it was good, and that he desires us to enjoy it. We are why he created the earth. When going through hard times, we sometimes think that God has it out for us, that he likes to kick us when we're down. However, you see here that Jesus desires us to have an abundant life. Also, if you considered what we've already looked at, this doesn't seem to be in line with God's character. How could a God that loved us so much and desire an intimate relationship with us be one that laughs at us when we fall on, flat on our face? He desires good for us. It is not enough for God that we don't just not die, but that we truly live in his freedom and love. This abundant life that Jesus helped create For us has another side to it as well. In the book of Galatians, we recently looked at how the law enslaved uh, the people. Jesus fulfilled this law so that they would not be constrained by it and therefore could live a more free life. We don't have to follow the letter of the law anymore to be or to have right standing with God. Finally, we see God's desire for a personal, tangible relationship with us become fully realized in Revelation 21, one through three. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them as their God. What an awesome thing to think about As God's plan throughout history just to be close to us so we could be his people and he could live with us. The next thing we're gonna see is that Jesus begins making all things new through the reunification of the nations. And before we look at this passage, let's travel back to the Tower of Babel. If you remember the Tower of Babel, God separated the people due to their sin. He did this by confusing their languages and dispersing them over the earth. This dividing of the people into nations goes beyond just Over here, the French. Over there, the British. And uh, I think we'll throw the Germans over there. Um, It goes beyond that. We see that in Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9. It's on the screen behind here for you guys. It says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of my generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. So we see, it was more than just all the nations being divided up. It was more, here are my chosen people, the Jews, and here is everybody else. We can call those the, the Gentiles. Now God's plan for Israel, however, was not that these would be His only people forever, but that they would reach the nations. There are a lot of passages that highlight this, but we're only going to look at two today. In Genesis 22:18 it says, "God says that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's offspring." And in Psalm 102,15 and 16 we read. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. God's goal for Israel was that they would keep, they would be the key to bringing the nations together. Now let's see Jesus' work here to reunify the nations. We see this in verse 16. Says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, what are the other sheep Jesus is speaking of in this uh, in this passage? Uh, there's a lot of debate, as Jesus was not very clear, um, somewhat vague. So some people believe that he's referring to aliens. Uh, the Mormons believe that the, they were some lost tribes of Israel, but I, I myself is subscribed to the view that the early church fathers had. These are referring to the Gentiles. I feel the Bible speaks enough to Jesus reunifying the nations that this interpretation makes the most sense. Uh, one of the most clear passages that speaks about this is in Ephesians chapter two. So I'm going to read that first, quick here. and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So we see here that Christ's death. Sorry. So we see here that through the Christ's death, the Gentiles became one with the Jews. This wall between the circumcised Jews and the uncircumcised Gentiles was torn down. This was the beginning of the renewal of the nations. We see the completion of God's recreation of the nations in Revelations five. 9 through 10. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. The key word here is a, a kingdom. God brought people from all languages and nations and created one kingdom through Jesus. One kingdom, one flock led by one shepherd. That that which was separated near the beginning of humanity has now been brought back together in the end. Ironically, this actually was what they were attempting to do with the Tower of Babel was try to create one kingdom, however in their kingdom they were God as opposed to the creator. Anyway, what does this mean to you and me right now? The most clear, evident, most clear and evident application of this is the fact that you and I are here right now. Since most of us, uh, if not all of us, are not Jews, the odds of us becoming God's chosen people, without Christ, is pretty small. There are examples of people outside the Israelite camp that believed some of the <coughs> that believed some of the Egyptians left uh, when Israelites left um, Egypt after the plagues. Uh, there's Rahab and Nebuchadnezzar. However, this was not commonplace. For the most part, God was with the Jews, and those were His chosen people. So we can be thankful for what Jesus has done to bring us into his flock. Another implication of this truth is that since God has a heart for the nations and he died to tear down the wall of hostility, that we should work at living with peace and mending the nations back together. Thinking back to Revelation, the Revelation passage, it stands out to me that the author doesn't just say everyone, but he speaks about what makes these people unique. He says that every tribe, every language, every nation, while he brings them into one overall kingdom, it seems like they don't lose their distinctiveness. Now what are some practical ways we can do this to work on mending the nations together? First off, we can help people that are in our neighborhoods from other cultures. Manchester is a refugee city, and there are a lot of people that come from around the world for safety here. What a great opportunity to connect with these people and help them adjust to a brand new country and new culture. Racial reconciliation is another way that we can work on mending the nations. Our country is being torn apart right now by racial discrimination And we, as ambassadors of Christ, should seek for ways to restore this giant rift. Beyond racial tensions, our country is also being polarized by the debate on sexual orientations, vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, Democrats and Republicans, and the list goes on and on. These debates are creating different factions and disunity in our country, And there is a lot of hate and harmful words that are being thrown out by people that call themselves Christians. This should not be. I'm not saying that disagreeing with people is, is wrong. However, we should treat them with respect as image bearers of God and as humans that Jesus died for so that he could have a relationship with them. One final thought here is that we have a strong witness for Christ when we love others, our neighbors as ourselves. When we love someone from another country, a different belief system, or someone across the aisle, we're an example of Christ to them. Let's move to our final point. Jesus begins the reversal of death. Now, before we look at what John 10 says about death, let's define what death is. Genesis 2:17, when Jesus was talking about the tree, or God was talking about the tree, he says, "But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Now the translation here says you shall surely die, but the more exact um, translation would be dying, you shall die. This is referring to the two deaths that man face, two deaths that man faces, spiritual death and physical death. Spiritual death is separation from God. This was instantaneous. This was an instantaneous result of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, physical death, there are multiple ways to define that, but for today, we're going to call it simply separation of the soul from the body. Physical death was set in motion for Adam and Eve, and there was no way for them to avoid it, nor for us. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now with that in mind, let's see how Jesus changes this. The first thing we see here is Jesus' authority over his own death. We see that in verses 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life, then I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. So Jesus states that he is the only one that could take his life from him. So it wasn't the Romans, it wasn't the Jews that killed him. It was him that gave his life willingly. While Jesus was 100% man, he was 100% God as well. So no one was going to be able to kill him unless he allowed them to. We see this several times in the Gospels, that people were about to kill him, and he just seems to disappear. One of these is in verse 39, which you didn't read in this chapter. They wanted to arrest him, but he escaped, into, escaped from their hands. We don't know how, he just, boom, he was there and then he just got away. He chose to lay down his life for you and for me. He did this because he loves us and he wants to have a personal relationship with us. In order for the bridge, uh, a bridge to God that was blown up by sin to be rebuilt, sin had to be paid for. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, just before he's betrayed and crucified, he was in utter anguish thinking about the path before him asking God if there was any other way than this. But there wasn't. So what did he do? He accepted the Father's will. Why? Because he loved you and me so much that he couldn't let us go. He was willing to suffer immense physical and spiritual pain to save us, to be with us. What a humbling thought to think that someone, an all-powerful God, Nonetheless, could love you and me so much that they'd be willing to do so much for us. Now, the fact that Jesus had authority over his death is great, but the fact that he also had the power, authority over bringing himself back to life is even greater. Jesus gives us a glimpse of his power to resurrect in the next chapter, in chapter uh, 10, we see that Jesus brings back Lazarus, who had been dead over four days. So he was he was dead dead, not just dead. Uh, this was an amazing miracle, but it was only Jesus flexing his resurrection muscles. Let me explain what I mean by this, by giving an example. If we skip back two chapters in John, chapter nine, we meet a man that was born blind. Jesus healed him as he had so many other people. But this miracle is different. This man was born blind. In verse 32, the once blind man stated that, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Many people had healed in the past, or many people had been healed in the past, However, to be healed implies that you were once whole, and you were returned back to that state. This man was never able to see. Jesus had to create wholeness, not just bring someone back to it. This is the next level authority that Jesus had over death. He can not only bring someone back to life, but he also bring himself back as well. It's kind of like the difference of a doctor using a defibrillator. I know I was going to screw that up. Uh, You know what I mean? To bring someone back to life. We see this in, in medical shows all the time. But the difference between that and Jesus is that Jesus is the one whose heart stopped beating. He grabs the paddles, and he does it himself. That brings us to our next point. Jesus' authority over our death and life. Jesus' authority over his death gives us confidence in his authority over our lives. So when he says in verse 28, I gave them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, we can know that Jesus has the power to make good on his promise. Let's take a look at two phrases in this verse that show us Jesus' work in reversing the curse of death. They are eternal life and never perish. These phrases are referring to our spiritual life, not our physical life. If Jesus was speaking of our physical life, the statement wouldn't be true, because obviously millions of people, Christians, have died uh, since Jesus' death and resurrection. So what does this eternal spiritual life mean? Charles Spurgeon says this quite bluntly about eternal life. If anybody says that he had eternal life, and lost it, he would be flatly contradicting himself. It cannot be eternal, or else he would still have it. If it is eternal, it is eternal, and there is no end to it. And thus, there is an end of further argument about it. So that is that. That's what he's saying. So once we are given eternal life, that never ends. This may seem obvious but we often forget it when we fall into sin and despair. This life was given to us when we came to faith in, in uh, Jesus. You see this in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice this speaks of not perishing here, just as it does in our passage. To perish here means to be destroyed, as in, punishment, sorry, as in punishment in hell. So through Jesus, we get eternal spiritual life, therefore starting the reversal of the curse of sin. This is only the start of the reversal, as the punishment of sin was not only spiritual death, but it was also physical death. And as we know, physical death has not been reversed yet. However, Jesus will bring about the resurrection of our bodies and, f- and end physical death. We're going to look at a couple passages here that talk about that. Uh, first of all, we see that Jesus speaking of the resurrection, physical resurrection, in Matthew 22, 23, and 33. Uh, which we're not going to read that passage today, but um, I definitely recommend you reading that. Um, we also see the Apostle Paul speak of this resurrection in Romans 8, 23 and 24a. He says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. You see, God made us to have physical bodies, and this was very good. To be fully human is to have a body. That is why God's ultimate goal is for us to be reunited with our physical bodies. The proof of this fact is the fact that Jesus' body was resurrected. This is the hope we have in Jesus. Jesus shows us that God not only says things like, you'll be resurrected, but he gives us proof that it will happen. Finally, we see the the final completion of death's reversal in Revelation 21.4, where it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So in this verse, we see God's full plan come to fruition with the death of death. This is the final step in God's plan to completely reverse the curse of death. In closing, let's look at the main point again. All things are made new through the love of Jesus. Jesus is the key to our recreation. He loved us so much that he willingly faced excruciating physical and spiritual pain so that he could restore us back to our original glory that he created us with. He has made a down payment on this promise by starting the process to bring us back to Eden. Therefore, I am confident that he will completely fulfill this promise. In Philippians 1.6, Paul, who has seen the risen Lord, says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's right, pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the plan that you have for us, Lord. We are not a mistake. Our lives matter to you, Lord, and you have a plan for us to make us new, Lord, and I just love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.